Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be winding down our series in the one another commands of the New Testament this month uh, and looking to the middle of next month to begin a series in the book of Zechariah, which is one of those minor prophets in the Old Testament with a lot of visions and really cool and weird stuff. So it'll be exciting for us to go through. But what's really, really cool is to see the faithfulness of God and his plan working even when we're facing discouragement and barriers that we can't seem to overcome. So that's uh, where we are winding down our one another series because I, when I typed, I was doing my notes, I said, wow, part 16, this has been a long series. But I, I trust it's been fruitful. I've heard some great things uh, from everybody in terms of how this series has impacted us as, as we want to make Christ visible in the way that we love one another. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples, referring to the world and the people around us. They'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. And so all of these one another's are based in the commands of love, and we are positioned and, and prodded to be toward one another in unique ways that reveal Jesus. And we need to own these because every one of us as a member of the body of Christ has a particular responsibility to demonstrate these one another's to those that are around us. Philippians 2, what the verses we'll concentrate, hone in on are 3 and 4, but this passage is just very encouraging and Christ-exalting. So we're going to read verses 1 through 11 and rejoice at Jesus who just gets to be king over everything. And when we exalt him as king, our lives begin to make sense. The word of the Lord says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we ask that you would be exalted. Jesus, be exalted today through the preaching of your word, and through the receiving of your word, that it might produce fruit in keeping with your call upon our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Several years back, I was introduced to an analogy of having spiritual blind spots in our lives. You know, when you're driving and the mirrors of your car don't show you everything that's immediately next to you, that you have these little cones that are coming off that are your blind spots when you're driving, and if you're not paying attention and go to switch lanes without checking that blind spot, it could be a dangerous situation, even cause a wreck. But thinking about that spiritually, we have areas in our lives that we tolerate or reason away 
or just flat out don't pay attention to. And if we're not careful with these areas of our lives, they will cause spiritual wrecks. And we'll end up getting angry, frustrated in life, not understand why things aren't going well. Most of the time, it's these areas that we're ignoring and things that we're comfortable with. And what Paul's drawing attention to is it's flat out our pride that is the, the biggest blind spot in our spiritual lives. And that pride shows up in different ways. The Apostle Paul in this passage is telling the church to mind their blind spot. He's giving them the area to look at. He's giving them the pride to zone in on. But we don't like to go after our pride. We, we think others are proud or selfish, and we excuse ourselves away. But, but from the outset, we need to just all agree. We're proud, and we're selfish. We just need to figure out where that's showing up in our everyday lives. We just often just don't think we're as selfish as we really are. And in our moments of conviction, we tend to excuse the behavior because somebody else's pride provoked us. Well, their selfishness got in the way of, and I'm just, I'm just, I, they're too selfish, and that just caused me to sin and anger in my speech against them. That's how we excuse it away. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he said that uh, the sins that we deal with that the devil tempts us with are really, those are sins that just, our nature goes after those things. He said, but pride's very different. Pride just from hell itself. And when you think about that, that's exactly how Satan fell from heaven. And that's really the reason that Adam and Eve looked at a fruit that was forbidden and said, give it a try. We don't want to follow the rules. We want to be like God and make the rules. Our pride is the blind spot of our spiritual journey that needs our attention so we avoid the potholes that sabotage the one another commands of the New Testament. So today, may we seek the Lord's grace to recognize and repent of our selfishness in order to be free to humbly consider one another. That first point there is the saboteur of the Christian life. Pride is the saboteur. Think of pride as uh, that double agent spy lurking in the background of our lives, seeking the right opportunity to expose evil that has yet to be sanctified in us. Paul described pride a few different ways, even in these couple verses. He gives these, the scope of how pride shows up in our lives. We need to check over our shoulder and look at the blind spot. See, we live in a culture that tells us is that the problem is that we don't think of ourselves highly enough. So the issue with us is a low self-esteem, but really, the Bible tells us and, and our experience in life tells us that our problem is not, not that we think too lowly of ourselves, it's that we think too highly of ourselves. We think we have some contribution that needs to be recognized we think we have some type of performance that should be rewarded. And when, when God doesn't give it to us like we want, we go to others and seek it from them. And it shows up in selfish ambition. We'll just go through these, these contexts to be able, this is just x-ray on our lives. This is an MRI to figure out what's going on. So as we're clanking around that MRI machine, gank, 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 gank. All right, good is coming about. I hate the MRI thing develop. I was claustrophobic. It's crazy. Loud. They put those headphones on. They don't work. I can't hear anything. But just this buzzing. That, that's what, when we look at our pride, that's what it feels like. Because it's clanking around and it's bothersome. And we get claustrophobic 
but we need the Lord's grace and his spirit's power to be able to investigate our lives to find out, Lord, is this sabotaging things that I don't even recognize? Is it undercutting the very life that I'm seeking to live for you in ways that are, are contrary to how you want me to live out life in Christ? So let's consider selfish ambition. There's even more subcategories that we can go into, but I think the Lord just laid these on uh, my heart for us as a church to, to investigate. Selfish ambition showing up in self-promotion. Self-promotion occurs in our minds first. That's why Paul is very heavily saying, hey, make sure you're thinking correctly because that's where, that's where pride lurks. It lurks in our minds, but when we want to be promoted, we seek to compete with one another. We compete and, and try to outdo somebody else. We compare endless co- comparisons of how what they have, what we don't have, and it brings in coveting. But when we get to a point where, well, we really, we always feel like if we just have that thing, then things will settle down in our hearts. But it, our pride is never satisfied like that. Selfish ambition shows up also in self-congratulating. Uh, years ago, the phrase humble brag was added to the dictionary. So people know what that is. It's, it's, bringing in, it's bringing in our own personal notoriety by telling a story of somebody else to then come back and highlight our contribution. Yeah, that was great, and we do that spiritually. We do it when, when God does something cool and we slip in how we prayed for it. We've been praying for that. we got to be careful. Are we really rejoicing that God answered prayer, or are we throwing in, <laughs> I'm really spiritual. Selfish ambition draws that out of us. And just conceit, thinking of ourselves really, really highly. And that shows up, I got these categories from uh, Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins. This is so very helpful. Moral superiority. We just think we're better than everybody. We perform better. We keep the rules better than everybody else. And if they would just catch a clue, then their lives would, would shape up a little more and reflect ours. That this is a moral superiority that deals with uh, the culture that we live in, but also dealing with the one another's, the people in the church. If we are, if we are finding ourselves lobbing judgments at people that we don't think are doing the right thing, we are not considering them as more important than ourselves. This conceit shows up also in doctrinal superiority. When we think we have, we have that corner of this doctrine, and we understand how it happens in all of life. We understand how it happens. And so now it's like a cookie cutter. We're, we're looking for it to show up in other people's lives in the exact same way. Or we simply just, uh, we, we don't consider others and what they're walking through because of their lack of doctrinal understanding. Conceit shows up in an achievement superiority. Just, this is John warns about this in 1 John. It's just the pride of life. Boasting of what we have, boasting of what we've done. We're just, we, we, we look at success. Success becomes, and success can be an idol that we go after to try to feel significant and accepted and satisfied in our lives. But when it's, when it's not doing that, we want that, uh, we want the comparison with somebody else and our success with their success to then bring us the peace that we're, it is absent and we're longing for in our lives. And conceit also shows up in an independent spirit. When, when we inform others in the body of Christ what we're doing rather than ask their opinion, 
It can, tend, it can show an unsubmitted heart. And Scripture is clear. Scripture is clear about making sure the church is following the leaders. And there is, there is a spiritual submission that occurs in that context. That's to be a blessing. That's why it's important to be part of a church where you're hearing the shepherd and you're hearing God's shepherd for you. And we walk together. So, and this is, is evident in so many ways, but it's, it's just, it tends to lurk. When we have an idea and we think it's a great idea and we really don't want to get it tested by the other men or the other ladies in our lives to find out what's really going on in our hearts to why we want that, we can find ourselves telling people what we're doing rather than say, hey, I'm feeling led to this. What do you think? You think this is wise for me? You think this is, is helpful? We need the body of Christ for that. We need spiritual leadership for that. We need pastors for that. And Paul talks about how there's an, uh, being inconsiderate of the others that are in the church. This shows up, he says, count others' interests as more important than your own. A good test ground for whether we are interested in somebody else is in our conversations. Do you? And you're going to need somebody to help you with this. Because again, we don't think we do this. Do we use conversations just to talk about ourselves? Do we talk about our successes or our problems? And we're just, we have an overinflated view of us. And so we talk. And if you're a talker, you can dominate a conversation. You can go on and on and on. You need somebody to be able to help you understand, hey, you're really talking a lot about yourself. Years ago, I heard uh, just a friend of mine, a brother, who just incessantly talking about different ideas and what's going on. And there was a little phrase that developed and as if he's in a conversation and he gets to that point where he's, he's tired of talking about himself and says, well, you know, enough about me. Let's talk about me. It's like you talk incessantly about yourself. But listen, that's on both ends of the spectrum, your successes and your failures, your achievements and your pity. We can, we can use both of those to just put ourselves in the conversation too much. But it, we, we can be inconsiderate of others in the use of our time when we just don't have available time to serve. We don't have available time to help people and to walk out the one or others of the New Testament. We can be inconsiderate of others uh, when we, we do not fully understand the effect of our actions on others. When we do something... And, and look, we can excuse it away on I just make decisions and I go and I'm task-oriented while people are left in the dust. They're left in our wake kind of thinking, ah, that feels weird. It happens in our homes a lot. If we don't have time for one another, if, we, if, we, if the effect of actions, if it happens in my house, as my kids come and ask me a question, I can be dismissive of them. That affects, that my action affects them but also shows up in the imitations that we offer people in the church. If we are only inviting people that just make life comfortable for us to be around us, we're not walking out the one another that God's called us to. We also are inconsiderate of others and in in not understanding the feelings of other people and just being rude. Just a rudeness, whether that's being terse or just 
direct, too direct sometimes with what you're thinking. Like that ready, fire, aim is too familiar to you. That's when the, we need the Lord to help us. Lord, help me ready, aim, fire, not ready, fire, aim. Because I don't want people just, I don't want to be rude and, and, or, or that shows up in indifference. I don't want to be indifferent to others when they're trying to ask me a question or seek some advice or just get to know me. But he, he uses that word significance. And, and as he uses that, count others in verse 3, count, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. If we have to count others more significant, that means the reverse is true, that there is a hypersensitivity to significance in the Philippian church that we know by the, by the Spirit's understanding is resident in every church. We crave significance as humans. We crave significance as, as people of God within the church. And I think it shows up, the significance shows up in two ways. One is in validation. We want to be validated. So we want, we want worth from being right. We want worth from being known. I, I want people to know me, and, and it's, a, a dis, it's just a disproportionate knowing. I want you to know me. I'm not really wanting to know you. I just want this access to be known by you so I can be comforted and I can, I can feel that significance and acceptance. We seek validation and control. We want to control people. We control circumstances. Why? Because that's where our worth comes from. That's where our significance comes from. We can seek validation through means of acceptance, whether that's a group of people. I just... I can't break into what I think is that group of people and my life is inferior because I'm comparing and I want to get in that group. We crave that acceptance or we just, we crave satisfaction. And that validation is we crave satisfaction that causes us to just get just this scattered approach to figure out what's going to work for me, what's going to fit to make my heart feel settled. We're looking for worth. Tim Keller, a wonderful resource, short little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says, spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. Yeah, I think the second aspect of the significance that we seek is in our victimization. And everybody knows how to play this card. Everybody knows how to talk to somebody else to make them get on your side or make them feel sorry for you. But we have to be very careful because this looks like humility. It looks like how we're supposed to walk out life, but it's seeking attention through martyrdom. I'm a, I'm a martyr, and we have these little martyr complexes of how much we sacrifice for somebody else, but yet there's no return, there's no validation through that. We even seek validation through our victimization and martyrdom. This is a particular sneaky idol of our hearts. But at the root level, we want others to think of us like we think of ourselves. Because in that, there's a twisted way where we feel, we feel known, we feel like somebody's with us and finally understands us. But all of these are connected to the desire to receive praise from men. The Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 42 and 43 we're told that there were Pharisees that believed in Jesus. The word says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, the ruling party, but for fear of the Pharisees, 
they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of their synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They wanted a position that they could see and attain to and, and the control, all that validation, all the, the seeking worth through prominence and seeking worth through having everybody pat you on the back. The Pharisees were the poster children for this. They said they, some of them believed Jesus, but they rather their position before men rather than their position before God. And look, when pride lurks in the church, that's exactly what's happening. We are more concerned about how we appear and we look in front of the people of God rather than God himself. And he says, be careful. Check your blind spots because there's a skill of the Christian life. That's our second point. There's a skill we need to learn and submit to. And this skill is humility and it is a difficult skill to master. You know why? Because as soon as you think you have humility, you don't have it anymore. It's the slipperiest thing in the world. In the Christian life, for sure, you, you just, there's no point that you can say, you know what? That was pretty humble me of, of, to do. No, we're walking contradictions then. We are to, see, the, the act of humbling ourselves is not, in essence, it's not to be self-haters. We are not to think ourselves, like think less of ourselves. Like we, we just mope and there's a woe is me complex and we try to just, just command ourselves into humility. That's not it. And, and Tim Keller in his book, Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, brings this point out. See, it's a, it's, a, it's a humility that doesn't hate ourselves. It just thinks of ourselves less. We don't think less of ourselves. We just stop paying so much attention to ourselves. Because the humility that Paul's showing is like in humility here. This is what it looks like. Serve. It looks like consider, count others more important than yourself. Because we love to, we love what we're looking at and we want other people to see it just like we do. We have this example gloriously in the Godhead where each member of the Trinity considers, prefers the other and seeks to bring glory to the other member above his own work. You have the Father highlighting the Son's work and sending the Spirit to highlight the Son. You have the Son saying, it's my Father's will that I'm, I'm, I'm walking out and I'm living out and I'm sending you the Spirit to highlight the Father. And you have the Spirit who's saying, no, it's all about the Father and the Son. And I'm just here to make all of that make sense. Constant preference and humility and love. And that's what we are to learn in our relationship with God so it shows up in our relationships with one another. Keller says, quotes here in your notes, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. A truly gospel-humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a gospel-humble person. The gospel-humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. It just works. 
It does not draw attention to itself. The toes just work. The ego just works. Neither draws attention to itself. See, there's an interesting concept when he brings up ego, and he draws this out very wonderfully, and I can't try to encapsulate it, but it, he just does it so wonderfully. That's why I suggest the resource, the book to you to, to go through. Is the ego is not something that we are to kill off because there is a desire in us to be exalted. But our problem is that we look to man and the people around us to exalt us when God says, no, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God and what? He will exalt you. We look for it from man when it's only what God provides. And when God provides it, we're not standing on a pedestal saying, yes, about time God did this because I'm something special. No, we're, we're probably kneeling at that moment and because we're showing what true humility is, what that gospel humility that Paul's describing, Jesus, who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the picture of humility. That's what we should strive for. And when we're doing that, when we're exalting Jesus, we're just not thinking so much about ourselves. We're not posturing, trying to figure out, how's that person thinking of me? And I want, I want this person to think this way of me, and I want to show myself, and so I'm going to change my appearance, change how I speak. Stop thinking of ourselves so much. But do what? Count others, he says. Count others more significant than yourselves. Other translations have, consider others more significant then yourselves consider their interests more significant. Remember how God, I love that word count because it reminds me of how God counts us. How does he count? What does he count to us? One, he does not count our sin against us. He counts Christ's righteousness to us. It's all the way back in Genesis with Abraham. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God interacts with us. In God's humility, he interacts with us, and he says, I'm seeing you as righteous. I'm not seeing your sin. I'm not trying to put your sin back on you. I'm not trying to dangle a little penalty of sin to get you to obey. He says, you are righteous in my sight. That's the position that we need to understand and not seek our position before people, before man. Because God counts us righteous because of faith. And since we have that with God, the promise is that he extends grace to us. He's patient with us, like we looked at last week. But he extends grace. And just to have this component and, and feature in our Christian walks is very helpful. When we see others as God sees them, it brings about our counting them as God does. Friends of God. That's how we should count one another. We need to learn not to see others as our enemies no matter how much they annoy us. They're not our enemies. What do we do? We extend grace. The grace that's been extended to us, we extend to one another. That's what we're doing. And in that extension of grace, we are in our love covering over a multitude of sins. We don't jump on every little thing. We walk down the road a bit with somebody to find out what's going on, what's the What's the background to this, and how can, we, how can we strategize to see God's fruit come about in your walk? 
So we, this extending grace shows up in this love to cover and love to hope. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, love hopes all things. That means, church, we give the benefit of the doubt when we want to jump to somebody's motive. They, they said this and they meant, and we think about something evil that they're trying to dig at us or tear us down. No, we give the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to automatically assume that that person's my enemy and against me. I'm just going to say, no, I, I'm, I'm going to trust they have my best interest in mind. And they're not, not, not looking to tear me down. But maybe they fumbled through a way to build me up. Or maybe it was just they had a bad day and they sinned. So I need to respond in love and extend some grace. Be able to say, I'm not, I'm not going to pick up an offense from this and, and cause it to have that cause a dis unity within what God wants us to maintain. So in conclusion, take genuine interest in others. We slay pride by serving one another. That's how we slay pride. Truly being sacrificial as Jesus did, taking the form of a servant. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what we're seeking in one another. And that's what we're going to seek in humility as we serve one another to see God's, God's glory and the confession of his glory come about in our lives. Father, thank you again the glorious demonstration of your love for us and giving us your word that we can put ourselves up against your word to say Lord how am I doing and, and the, the response that we have from you is not ridicule it's not condemnation for taking so slow or, or not being where we should be Lord the response we have from you is grace because you are a humble God and you call us to walk with you in this life. So, Lord, we will do that. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us investigate our blind spots and you would give us a team of people around us, even our family members, our children, to help us understand when, when pride has surfaced and it's sabotaging your work in our hearts. It would be open to say, I need your help to check my blind spots. And, Lord, in that moment, when we find, may we find abundant grace abundant grace because that's what you give us and you lead us with. So Lord, I pray for humility to be so thick in this church, a genuineness that seeks the interests of others and doesn't just seek opportunity to make ourselves fit in or get something in return. Bring about your good, Lord. We thank you.